Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program, available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. Ready to start talking to your kids about financial literacy? Meet Greenlight, the debit card and money app that teaches kids and teens how to earn, save, spend wisely, and invest with your guardrails in place. Parents can send instant money transfers, automate allowance, and more. Plus, keep an eye on spending with real-time notifications. Join more than 6 million families building healthy financial habits together on Greenlight. Get your first month free at greenlight.com slash odyssey. That's greenlight.com slash odyssey. Hello and welcome to True Crime Daily's The Sidebar, taking you inside the courtrooms and trials of high-profile and notorious cases from across the country. I'm your host, Joshua Ritter. I'm a criminal defense lawyer based here in Los Angeles and previously an L.A. County prosecutor for nearly a decade. We are recording this on Monday, February 28th, 2022. And today we are excited to be joined by Judge Ashley Wilcott, a certified child welfare law specialist who is a top analyst and consultant in the legal field, as well as a commentator and host on Court TV. Welcome, Ashley. Oh, thank you, Joshua, for having me. I'm so happy to be on with you. Today we're going to be covering high-profile cases making headlines across the country. And Judge Ashley, uh, you cover these cases as closely as anyone, covering them on a daily basis with your show. So I'm sure listeners are really going to be interested to hear your perspective. But before we jump in, um, could you tell us a little bit about your background and how you got started? Absolutely. So I am in Atlanta, Georgia. I went to law school here, married somebody from here. So I'm still here, but (laughs) gratefully so. I will tell you that, uh, Joshua, I've been very lucky in terms of, yes, I work hard, but I've ended up in jobs that I have really loved and been passionate about. So I was a special assistant attorney general for many years doing trial work, representing the uh, child welfare agency in court. And I knew in eighth grade, I to be a trial lawyer so it suited me perfectly but i then got the opportunity to be the child advocate for the state of georgia under governor deal i did that i then was a judge in dekalb county georgia and have transitioned to now used to be a legal analyst at different times but now a full-time legal analyst and i am a self-proclaimed trial nerd and i absolutely love doing it and really talking about all the legal issues and constitutional issues that we see in trials every day fantastic well we've got uh some good ones it's been a busy couple of weeks uh, the first case we thought we'd jump into is the uh, McMichael family members were found guilty of hate crimes by a federal jury in the killing of Ahmad Aubrey. And even though the whole world knows about this case, we'll just kind of sum it up for listeners. Following a two-week trial, Travis McMichael, 35, his father, Gregory McMichael, 65, 
and William Roddy Bryan were convicted by a federal jury for committing hate crimes. Travis and Gregory McMire armed themselves with a Remington shotgun and a 357 Magnum revolver and chased Ahmad through the neighborhood trying to box in Mr. Arbery with their trucks. Arbery was running with his hands empty and in plain view. He never spoke to the defendants and never made any threatening sound or gesture. Travis McMichael got out of the truck and pointed a shotgun at Ahmed. When he tried to defend himself, Travis shot him in the chest. The, wound, the wounded Aubrey grabbed for the gun. During the struggle, Travis McMichael fired two more shots into Mr. Aubrey, who then stumbled and fell face first onto the pavement where he died. The evidence at trial proved that race was a but-for cause of the defendant's actions, and this is something I really would like to hear your analysis on, with the factor that the defendants would not have chased down a black man whom they, whom they assumed, without evidence, was a criminal. The evidence included illicit text messages, social media posts, and testimonies of witnesses which establish prejudicial assumptions of black people and criminality, as well as a desire to see harm come specifically to black people. Um, so first, Judge Ashley, I'm curious to get your thoughts on a case like this. You've been following it. It's been followed by the whole country. What were your thoughts on the verdicts? So um, I, I think that the verdict gave a lot of people hope and the belief that when the evidence is presented to indicate the level of racism and targeting of a particular person because of their color of skin, that there are consequences and that there can be a guilty verdict in that case. And, um, you know, as you well know, Joshua, cameras aren't allowed in federal court, but we had the opportunity for a reporter to be there covering this for us live. And I can tell you that so much of the evidence really pointed to, yes, they did this because of the color of the skin of Ahmaud Arbery, which is really horrific to even think can yeah. happen, but there needed to be accountability. And, you know, I believe in our jury system. I believe in juries and the, the outcomes. And so I think that, you know, they made a decision based on the evidence and the hate crime conviction was made. Yeah, it certainly sent a statement. Um, and you pointed this out, that it was in federal court, so there were no cameras, unfortunately. But help listeners to understand what is the significance or what's the difference between a federal case and a state case and why might there be um, dual prosecutions as we've seen in this case and in the George Floyd case that we're going to talk about in a little bit. Absolutely. Such a great question because there are two different courts, two different standards, two different laws, but really important to make that distinction. State court is for criminal acts. And as we know, all three of the same defendants were convicted for the murder of Ahmaud Arbery. That means in the state court criminal charge, it didn't matter the reason for the murder, murder rather. It didn't have to be based on the fact that he was black. It didn't have to be based on the fact that they didn't like him on a street. The motive didn't matter. It didn't matter why they did it. That had nothing to do with the crime. In the federal hate crime trial, federal charges, and it means that they did this act, the killing of Ahmaud Arbery, because of the color of his skin, that that is the reason that they chased him down and killed him. So two different statutes, one's federal, one's criminal, but that's the main difference. This was not a criminal case, but rather federal law, you cannot commit a hate crime. And the allegation was and conviction was for the fact that they did. You know, the Justice Department made a statement that they will continue to use every resource at their disposal to confront unlawful acts of hate and hold accountable those who perpetrate them, as they obviously did in this case. 
Do you have a sense that we might see more of these types of prosecutions in the future? Well, I have to tell you, Joshua, I feel like we have been seeing more of these types of prosecutions, and I'm not sure it's because we've really been seeing more, or rather because there's more media coverage and more awareness, and regrettably, we live in a time of conflict with a lot of these issues, and so the good aspect of that and hate crime and the conflict over them is it becomes public. And then there can be more accountability and then there can be more awareness and that can all lead to positive outcomes. So I'm not sure if we're really seeing more of it or rather it just feels that way. But I do think that anytime you have a conviction on a case like this, that it, yes, will encourage a higher public awareness a higher level of prosecution, a higher likelihood that we won't have, that it's not that we're only seeing the prosecution of these cases, but also convictions in these cases. Yeah. You know, it's it's so frustrating. I wish the chief justice uh, would change the rules on recording inside of federal courtrooms, because like you point out, there's a lot of what a trial is about is, yes, that defendant and what what crimes did they commit or not. But it's also about sending messages to the community that what we as a culture and people will and will not accept. And that's why I think it's so important for shows like the one that you do to kind of talk about and you, the transparency of the criminal justice system. And it would be nice if we had cameras to understand why these convictions are coming down and what type of conduct we're talking I about. I gotta tell you, Joshua, when I was a trial attorney and there were motions for media, I would always say, oh my, no, this doesn't need to be televised. The last thing we need when I was a trial attorney was all of these people watching and commenting and that's not the point. Boy, have I, right? You can tell obviously, have I come for a full <laughs> circle to say, hey, this is something that absolutely does need to be televised in the right way. You wanna protect yeah. identity of jurors. You wanna protect the rights of the defendant, not interfere with that. So do there need to be safeguards and, and cautions? Absolutely, but I so agree with you because it raises the bar, it raises awareness. It does so many positive things in my mind that it can only make us better as a system and as a society. I completely agree, completely agree. Turning now to a, another case, federal case, uh, that if there's any other case that had more attention, it was this one. And it, this involved the three other officers found guilty of violating the civil rights of George Floyd. Um, for folks who haven't been following, three former Min Minneapolis PD officers charged of depriving George of his civil rights while acting other, under the authority of government. Each could face life imprisonment, that's their exposure, but many um, consider that that would be unlikely. A straight state trial is also scheduled in June for these same uh, three officers. That would be for a case of aiding and abetting murder and manslaughter. During this trial, prosecutors said that the defendants had a front row seat to Floyd's murder and chose to do nothing to help him while Chauvin knelt on his neck for nearly nine and a half minutes. Thomas Lane, one of the officers, was the only defendant of the three to not be charged with failing to intervene on the actions of Derek Chauvin, and he expressed concern and suggests that turning the victim over might be helpful. He also performed CPR. Defense attorneys have said that the men did not receive adequate training or relied on Chauvin as the most experienced officer on the scene. So 
One thing that struck me as a former prosecutor is you begin to be familiar of how officers are trained to follow a chain of command, Ashley. And this is something that I think will reverberate throughout the country. You know, you don't want a bunch of different people shouting different orders when you're in a highly chaotic and volatile situation. But my first question is, do you feel that this verdict will have a chilling effect on officers across the country? I will tell you that I too felt like, but they initially, when this first happened, I thought, well, they were following the chain of command, which is what they need to do because you do need to put, right? You need to have a system in place whereby they consistently apply the law in a good way whenever they are doing their job and protecting the community and themselves. But to your point, Joshua, there's that line. There's that line of, yes, you need to follow your chain of command, but not if they're wrong and doing something that's going to harm someone. And so now you're bringing in that subjective decision making when it used to be, no, you follow the chain of command. And so I think it draws a line in the sand. What do I mean by that? Yes, there needs to be training. Yes, there needs to be following chain of command until and unless not intervening causes such a high risk to the person that's going to be injured, might be injured, is being injured. So it does change the landscape, but I would hope, frankly, even though officers are trained to follow chain of command, that they always have the common sense, but I need to not follow and I need to fight back because what they're doing is dangerous and not okay and they've crossed the line and they're going too far and now this man is being hurt yeah well and especially if if part of what we're all doing here is trying to rebuild that trust in law enforcement you hope that they are taking that great responsibility like you said um seriously because they realize people's lives could end uh if they don't behave in a way that might even be contradictory to what other officers are behaving to or asking them to do, but instead is concerned with the safety of the person that they're arresting. Another question I had for you as a judge, um, each of the officers here had kind of a different role. We're not all talking about them doing the same thing. One was conducting crowd control. Another was holding on to uh, Floyd's legs. What, what role could this possibly play at sentencing that they each had kind of a different level of, in, of involvement? So that's such a great question. And you know better than I do, Joshua, as an attorney, criminal defense attorney and all your roles, that those arguments and recommendations by the prosecution and defense are going to need to be made to the judge so that the judge can consider those recommendations and arguments of either this person, this should count as a mitigating factor because they were less involved and therefore they should get a lighter sentence or this should be an aggravating factor for this person because although they were less involved, they did ABC, right? So all these arguments, first of all, need to be made to the court because the only way as a judge I could ever consider anything is if people made those arguments. And then secondly, there is discretion uh, outside of the federal sentencing guidelines, of course, those have to be followed, but then there's some discretion and looking at aggravating factors and mitigating factors and what does this mean? And I think the reality is, and this is such a non-answer, there's two sides to it. Number one, throw each other under the bus. Ultimately, the jury means you are all found guilty, right? Or on the other side, 
Well, they were all found guilty, but to your point, Joshua, that judge may want to use a little bit of discretion available to say, this person needs to pay more for it because of the mitigating or aggravating factors, and therefore their sentence may be a little longer within the guidelines or a little shorter within the guidelines. So I, I, I don't know what to expect. Often I'll say to you, oh, this is what I think. This is one until I hear what's presented to the court I just don't know which no. of those two things to expect. And I'd love to hear your opinion. I, I, I just, I don't know. No, I agree with you. I, I, I don't know what to expect either, but I tell you what I know is going to happen is no matter what the judge sentences them to, there are going to be plenty of people who are going to be upset with it on both sides. If it's too long, if it's too short, it's just these are one of those cases that we've seen uh, uh, before where it just never everyone is so strongly invested in it that it feels like no one feels that justice was served. Yeah, I agree with you 100 percent. That is one of these cases. Yeah. Uh, turning to another one of those cases, um, the trial began for one officer charged in the raid that resulted in the death of Brianna Taylor. And this all st stemmed from a warrant executed by the Louisville officers, which caught Taylor's boyfriend off guard. He opened fire on what he assumed were intruders and returning fire from the other officers resulted in Taylor's death. He apparently indiscriminately fired into the apartment complex. It is important to note that Hankinson did not fire the shot that actually killed Taylor and he is not being charged with her death. This case isn't about that. Instead, he's being charged with what is called felony wanton endangerment. Um, I was looking forward to talking with you about this because we actually chatted a, a little bit about this on, on your show. Um, it, it's a fascinating case, and I know that you've watched it very closely from the beginning. Just give us kind of your initial thoughts on how you feel the case is going for the prosecution. Well, I think the prosecution is presenting all of its evidence. What do I mean by that? They've gotten pictures admitted that show where the shell casings were found out in the parking lot, that show where all the shots were fired, where the neighbors were, um, interview on body cam of the neighbor and where the shots came in the room. So important to remember the three, the neighbors fortunately were not hit by bullets, but it is the wanton endangerment other than Brianna Taylor, who was killed, but that was by gunfire allegedly from another different officer. So this officer, as you just said, is not on, uh, charged with the Breonna Taylor instance. So um, I think that they are presenting all of the evidence. We know on Friday, the jury did a walkthrough. They went to the crime scene. Now it sure didn't look like the crime scene, right? It's now been um, patched up and redone and fresh paint and fresh floors. And so you're just walking through an, an empty apartment, but the jury did get to do that. And I think this prosecution is really um, masterfully going through every piece of evidence. Now, is that gonna win at the end? I don't know, but I do think they're putting it all out there for this jury to make that decision. Yeah, I remember uh, in the part of the trial that we were watching together, it was this kind of slow, deliberate presentation of all the pictures and where bullet holes were found in the other apartment that were all traced back to the fire, the the weapon of this officer, and it looked like a war zone. I mean, there were shots in the bathroom next to uh, 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 shampoo bottles and shots fired into the uh, dining room table. And you can just imagine the jurors sitting there thinking, "This is where people lived. This is where people ate breakfast. This is where people washed their hair." And a bullet could have easily struck any of them. I think it's 
I think it's a powerful case for the prosecution. It's going to be a difficult case for the defense. Yeah, I don't disagree with you. And I think, in, uh, you know, uh, but let me say, I, I think it is a powerful case for the prosecution, but the defense does have a defense, right? He says, and I expect that we'll hear him to testify, but we have to wait and see. But, you know, he has said he was responding to what he believed shots fired at fellow officers. And that right. is the reason that he did fire his gun. And that's a viable defense. That's one yeah. that might when I think it's going to depend on whether or not he testifies, which I think he will, and what he has to say. Yeah. Another thing I'm, I'm sure will come out is that officers are trained. If they're going to fire their weapon, they're unloading that weapon. We, we oftentimes hear about these cases. We wonder why were so many fi shots fired? Because they're not trained to fire, you know, one or two shots. If they feel a threat is coming and it's people are shooting back at them, they unload that weapon. And so it's not surprising that he did. W one last question on these kind of last few cases that we've talked about it, it, these have weighed so kind of heavily on our collective emotions as a country do you think these cases are playing a role in the jurors mind i guess my, my question is is it is it impossible to find an impartial jury in a case like this that is such a great question as all the rest have been because there's a lot of argument made that you know especially in our world today you get alerts from your social media accounts from cnn for whatever news source you follow and as a result nothing it, there's transparency around all of it you know when anything happens in one of these cases so people argue that but i have to tell you i truly believe that the whole um voir dire or voir dire depending on which part of the nation you live in that <laughs> process and really asking the questions and jury questionnaires if they're used and the striking of jurors i do believe that that means and even these major cases that almost everybody's heard of that you can still select impartial jurors because it's okay if they've heard about the case or read about the case. It's whether or not they can make a fair decision based on the evidence presented, even if they've been following it, even if they've heard things about the case. Can they put all that aside and be fair and impartial in reaching a verdict? And I do believe that's possible. I do believe that there has to be a good system in place to get rid of jurors that people feel, or defense or prosecution feel like are not going to be fair and impartial and are going to be biased. But with that system in place, I, I think it's the best we can do. And I think it means that a defendant can get an impartial jury. Agree with you. And I believe in our system enough to, to feel that that is taking place. Um, switching gears for a bit, um, the parents of Ethan Crumbly are, are now set to stand trial for involuntary land, uh, manslaughter. Their son, Ethan, uh, 15, is facing adult charges for his actions at the Oxford High School shooting, which left four fatally injured and seven others wounded. And a judge just recently found that the deaths of the victims could have been avoided had James and Jennifer Crumbly exercised ordinary care and diligence in the care of their son. This is a fascinating case of, I, I, I've never heard of it, so it could be first of its kind, where the parents are being found to be responsible in some way for the deaths not caused by them directly, but because they didn't do something that they should have done to intervene with their son, who is obviously suffering from mental illness. As someone who specializes in child welfare, what is your take on the actions of the Crumbleys? Was, was, did they have an obligation that they failed to do? Well, did they have an obligation they failed to do for me in my mind personally, my personal opinion? Absolutely, 100%. There were red flags in retrospect. Um, 
us looking in retrospect, they should have known at the time. There were issues. There are services out there to help. There are things they could have done. I read about the father saying at one point when Ethan went to him and said, I want to go to the doctor and get meds. I need help. And the father basically said, you need to suck it up. And that's a problem. So yeah, there's absolutely negligence. There's absolutely potentially abuse under the laws in that state. Buying a child a gun, especially when they're having mental health issues, not a good idea. They're responsible in that sense. But you are right. As far as I know as well, this is a case of first impression, meaning there's been no other school shooting of which I'm aware that parents have been charged for the shooting by their child of students at a school. And so it's a hugely important case. And the question becomes not necessarily were the parents negligent, because I do believe they were negligent, but rather does that rise to the level of the criminal culpability in a case like this of murder? Are they responsible for the murder of those four students who died? And case of first impression, a lot of legalities and a lot of arguments are going to be made. What will the court, what will the jury do? We just have yeah. to wait and see. Yeah, yeah. You know, I'm always looking at these cases and wondering what will the f effects of this case be outside of that courtroom and that small community? And uh, you're right. There's plenty of fight to be had here, and there's a whole trial to be had here before we get to the end of this. But even the fact that this prosecution has taken place, what effect do you think this is going to have on parents? Oh, yeah, a huge effect, to your point. To actually have parents charged in these circumstances is so unusual. Again, first of its kind, of which I'm aware it all of a sudden opens up a whole world of criminal liability of parents for parenting. Yeah. Think of it that way. A whole world, criminal liability of parents for parenting and the choices right. they make, because we all have a constitutional right to parent our children, period. However, you can't engage in abuse or neglect. That's when children can be removed from you legally. So what does it mean? It means that when something happens because of the way a parent parents their child, they can be potentially charged criminally. That's right. huge. That right. is a huge shift in our landscape and a huge opening to parents may become afraid to do anything or that no matter what they do, they may be criminally responsible because the reality is, I don't care how good a parent is, yes, they're red flags. Yes, you need to react to those as parents or caretakers. However, no one is always going to be able to predict what their child's going to do. Yeah, and that that's really the point here, right, is that maybe they could have been better at parents and maybe there was a lot of things that they overlooked and red flags that they ignored and in, in hindsight, a whole different way they could have parented. But he, as an individual, took independent steps and made decisions himself. And that's where this gets all into this scary kind of uncharted uh, territory in the legal landscape that we're now charging people for a crime that they themselves, we all know, did not directly commit. It's, it's, it's going to be closely watched by the country, I'm sure. Yes, and I just have to say one other thing. I believe that had they not put the gun in his hand, what do I mean by that? Had these parents not bought him a gun that he had access to, I don't think they would have been charged no. at all. I think I that was the tipping point. No, I, I completely agree. I think that was the one that the prosecution probably turned to themselves and said, we, we just can't ignore this. Yeah, yeah. I agree. Yeah, it's crazy. Case. It is a crazy case. The last one I wanted to talk about today is something that broke 
Uh, it, it, we had a verdict on Friday. I know it's a case that you've been following very closely, and that is of Curtis Reeves, the popcorn shooting. Uh, he, he took the stand in his own defense. Um, and just on Friday, a jury of four men and two women found Curtis Reeves not guilty of second-degree murder in the fatal shooting of Chad Olson on January 13, 2014, at a matinee shooting showing of Lone Survivor in a movie theater near Tampa. The 79-year-old police captain reportedly told Olson to silence his phone in a movie theater and claims that Olson reacted aggressively. Reeves said um, it escalated to a point where he was so fearful of the victim that he had no other choice to draw his weapon. You watched the verdict come through. What was your reaction? Were you shocked? Holy smokes. Uh, my yeah. reaction, I watched it and was glued to my seat for Vinny's entire show. That's when it came on when he was doing his closing argument show. I couldn't believe it. I really was surprised. I had predicted, and I'm always wrong. Nobody ever gets what a jury's going to do exactly right. But I certainly had not predicted a not guilty across the board. So it really, I think, makes us all pause to think, A, you never know what a jury's going to do, truly. But B, the self-defense reasonable person they believed it was reasonable that he used self-defense because he was in fear of his life and i have to respect that was the decision of this jury after hearing all of the evidence but it was a surprise yeah i agree i agree with you i again you're right we need to respect the jury's decision they sat there through all of the testimony they listened to every minute of it I'm, i'm sure they considered it uh thoroughly but I was shocked, too, because, I, you know, I've seen plenty of self-defense cases, and this didn't seem to rise to that level of fear for, for death, fear for, for harm that requires a response of deadly force. Uh, you know, it, I, I think I said before that, that you could understand where maybe he was feeling he was being attacked, but by fists, but to pull a gun and put a bullet into a man's chest, it's pretty shocking. Were you able to watch some of his testimony, Mr. Reeves? Oh, yes, I did. I did. And and I will say this. he um, He's very, in both his interview with the police right after the incident, as well as when he testified, his demeanor to me is what I would call very law enforcement. He was prior law enforcement. What do I mean by that? Just not very emotional, more of a recitation of the facts and what happened from his perspective. And, you know, he admitted, I think his honesty came through. He admitted, yeah, I I did mean to shoot him. And yeah, it's a terrible thing, but I was fearful. I was scared. I was afraid to death. And this is what I had to do because of his actions. And clearly the jury found him credible and believed him. But I think, you know, so many people are obviously so vocal about each side of this case. And I think what people are afraid of is that slippery slope. That doesn't mean that anybody can take a gun into a movie theater and if I throw popcorn in their face, they get to shoot me. And that's where it's frightening when you take it to that degree. I think it's important to keep it in the context of these specific facts. Yeah. Yeah, no, there, there's a lot of people watching because it, 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 though though they didn't prevail on those arguments, the Florida Stand Your Ground law played kind of a central role in all of this. And I agree with you. I think this may send a message to some people that, hey, I'm, you know, I'm allowed to bring my gun with me. And if trouble breaks out, may, maybe I can use it. And I, I hope that's not true. But it, again, one of those cases that's going to have a resounding effect outside of that small community in that courtroom. Isn't it crazy? And I know you mentioned this at the beginning. You're right. The number of trials that right now are happening that aren't just trials, 
that are significant to our yeah. history, to our rights, to every person. Anybody could be in a movie theater having popcorn. I mean, it's just crazy to me the significance and magnitude of the important cases and the fact you bring attention to them and all your legal expertise that you bring when you come on uh, court tv with me i think it just raises awareness oh thank you and that's why we're so grateful we've got shows like yours yours on court tv to cover these things and help explain to us uh, how this could have an effect on our lives ashley thank you so much for coming on this week where can people find out more about you Absolutely. A couple of ways. You can always email me directly, believe it or not, ashley.wilcott at gmail.com. Also, ashleywilcott.com, two L's, two T's, W-I-L-L-C-O-T-T, is a way to find my website with all my information. Fantastic. And I'm your host, Josh Ritter. You can find me on Instagram and Twitter at Joshua Ritter ESQ. And you can find our sidebar episodes wherever you get your podcasts. And we want to hear from you. If you've got questions or comments you'd like us to address, Tweet us your questions with the hashtag, hashtag TCD sidebar. And thank you for joining us at the True Crime Daily sidebar. Mm-hmm.